so good, you guys. So good. So fun to see the kids there as well. Um, I saw a few of you a couple weeks ago. That was really fun. And it's so great to be back with you. Um, and Andy is here, which, which means I have to behave myself more today. Andy hates when I um, give comparisons about us. So I'm not going to do that. Um, because they, it kind of pits us against each other, and that's never been my intention. And so consider Andy and I are like an Oreo cookie. I mean, most of us grew up on Oreos. We love Oreos. They're amazing. So if we were an Oreo, I would probably be the middle part. I'm a little bit more squishy than Andy is. That's why. Sometimes a little too sweet, I guess. Um, and Andy would definitely be the outer part, the cookie part. And because he just kind of holds things together. You know, he really does. I think that's one of Andy's gifts. That's why I love him. He, he has a great way of initiating with me. He, in many ways, he, it, it's a mutual friendship, but he kind of holds us together. He holds this community together so well. I know like many of you share that responsibility, but um, he would be the cookie part, which is most people's favorite part, which, which I totally get. I'm going to light the uh, Christ candle um, because what I love about this, I, I learned this from Larry. Thanks, Larry. And then Ruth Haley Barton does this as well. It's a good reminder to me and it's a good reminder to everyone that we cannot attain God's presence because God is already 100% totally with us. What's absent is our awareness. And so the candle is just a symbol. It reminds us that God is always with us. God is always with us. And then God also illuminates all truth. And so I have the freedom and you have the freedom today. If there's anything true that's said today, it's from God. It's not from me. And may that illuminate our lives. And even in this passage that we may... Uh, uh, rise up, O sleeper. Arise from the dead because Christ will shine on us. That's what this candle represents. And if there's anything I say today that, that isn't true, it's not from God, we're all human. One of my favorite professors, N.T. Wright, said, and I, I literally think he's the best uh, New Testament scholar on the planet. He said, I think I have about it about 80% right. So if he's only 80% right, I'm at best like 40, 40 to 50 <laughs> So all that means is uh, we have the freedom. If there's something you maybe don't, it just doesn't sit with you right, you don't fully agree with, that's okay. We need to learn how to, to do that. As the Bereans, we need to learn how to wrestle with one another and it not sacrifice our oneness. Can I get an amen to that to start off? I feel like if anyone's going to model how do we do that, how do we come together and be one, and we don't always have to even see things eye to eye, that's okay, that's okay. Uh, this is a great passage. I want to start off with a little bit of context for you of my life, because I think that can help. Some of you have heard a little bit of my story before. Maybe some of you haven't. I grew up in the, the Midwestern part of the country uh, in, in a nuclear family. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear it, it would be termed as a traditional family. But even that doesn't say everything, because if you go to other countries, a traditional family is three to four generations living together. <laughs> a nuclear family would not be a traditional family. Uh, but in America, at least for a white person like myself, it, it, that was kind of a traditional family. My dad was the one who worked, brought home the bacon, so to speak. My mom mostly stayed home, had some different part-time jobs. I, I had one sister. It, it, I had an amazing childhood. More of a cultural Christian growing up. We would maybe go to church. Uh, we went to different churches growing up, but it wasn't a big part of our life. Accepted Jesus when I was 15 at a Southern Baptist church camp. Okay, I'm not going to say anything more about that. That's for other discussions. 
uh, if your finger's on the pulse of, of the... Um, anyways, leave that there. But at the same time, I had, a, I had an amazing encounter with Jesus there. So it, nothing's black and white all the time. It, it was just an amazing encounter with Jesus that completely changed my life. Went to a, a Baptist university, great school. Uh, never really dated a lot in high school. Uh, met, met someone from San Diego who became my wife. We got married while we were still in college at 21 years old, ring before spring. And I said, oh, maybe ring before two springs. So I, got, I was married in college, which is a little unusual. And we moved out to San Diego. That's where she was from. And a quarter-life crisis happened. And long story short, she left me for another person. And that was a, I was like 25. It was crushing for me. As a 25-year-old, that was, for me, that was the hardest thing I'd, I'd uh, been through, had a pretty privileged life up to that point. And, but at the same time, even though that was the hardest time of my life, and this is, this is how God works, I had one of the most amazing re-encounters with Christ in one of the hardest times of my life. Has anyone ever experienced that? Like, yes, we can experience God in, in the best times, the times at the beach, those, those times of resonance where I, it's like a slice of heaven I'm experiencing. We can 100% experience God there. But we can also experience God in unique ways at our lowest point of our life, like Psalm 40. God, God rose me up out of the pit. He grabbed me there. I was powerless, and God saved me. I had one of those experiences, too. met an amazing woman, and I was like, at that point, when you go through something that terrible, you're like, I'd rather never be married again than go through that, just to be honest with you. But you, we all have desires. And I met this amazing woman, and I was like, Wow. It was my wife, Lindsay, now. We, we later got married. But at the time, I had no idea. We didn't, even, we didn't even really talk or date for a whole year because I was healing. She had almost got married, and so she was healing. Then we dated for uh, a couple years, and that includes the engagement, and we got married. And she, because you've met her, she's, she's spoken here before, amazing person. I mean, like her character was so attractive to me. And I, I, she was, for me, she, she had all of these qualities that I really wanted. And she's also an amazing leader, though. So for me, I didn't know it at the time, but I had this cognitive dissonance somewhere deep in the recesses of my mind, soul, body, spirit. Because I grew up in this very traditional, very conservative. And those words, I don't know what those words mean anymore. In some circles, I would be very, very, very conservative, like uncomfortably so. In other circles, they would consider me very, 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 very progressive and liberal. So I don't know what I am, to be honest with you. But like in those kind of traditional nomenclatures in the Midwest, I kind of grew up in a more just kind of like, like my parents, model my parents. The, the man's this, the, the generals were very clear, everything was very clear. But then I meet this incredible woman who's an amazing leader, also meek and really amazing person, I started to reconsider just, just that experience of, of being, being married to this person. Quick caveat, the first three, we had an amazing dating experience, enchanted. The first three years of our marriage, disenchantment. <laughs> disenchantment. <clears throat> it highlighted parts of myself that I didn't know existed. Ugly parts. And if you're married in this room, or have been married in this room, or been in a very serious relationship of any kind, actually any familiar relationship, it can highlight the best parts of you and the worst parts of you. You can't hide when you live with someone in that covenant. You can't. They know your habits. They know your good habits. They know your bad habits. I mean, it's everything. So it, it definitely was a revealer of parts of myself. At the time, we just thought, oh, marriage is hard. This is our lot in life. 
our covenant, thankfully, of marriage held us together. Like there's times where we, would, we vocalize that to each other. It's like we, we feel the grace of God's covenant holding us together because this is like, this is hard. Like there's some days I don't want to be married, you know? I mean, just being honest, it's hard to admit that. And so I guess I'm sharing the story because it did involve a lot of everything about me changing. And that's good. Because, and I know Andy... I know Andy shouts this from the rooftops. This is part of the vision. Discipleship also, and put another way, Robert Mulholland Jr., is, con- is the process of conforming to the likeness of Christ for the sake of others. The process of conforming to, this, to the likeness of Christ for the sake of others. That's transformation. That's change. So if we're not changing, if we're not transforming, then what are, what are we doing? I mean, imagine a life of just being stagnant not changing, not growing, not learning. Uh, that's actually, even though it may not seem like it, because there's part of all of our, probably something we'd like to do, we'd all want to be experts in everything all the time, but th- that would in many ways be miserable, even though it's hard to, to think about that. So as we consider this passage today, it's actually, uh, you know, we've talked about chapters one through three, talking about how God is one. God created us, God is one. We're created in God's image. And then chapters three, sorry, four through six, are then, okay, how do we be one as God is one? So that's, that's huge. That's a huge point. That's the main idea of the whole book. Everything else we read ultimately has to come under that umbrella of understanding. God is one. We're creating God's image. So how do we be one as God is one? And then it gets practical here. So before we get into that, if you've, you're probably familiar with this, this passage. There's two other places in Scripture, three other places known as the household codes. I want to put up some reflection questions on the screen. And it's okay, we probably have different experiences with these ideas because we come from different traditions, different backgrounds. That's kind of what the church is, right? We come together in Jesus' name and otherwise we may not ever know each other. (laughs) We're here because of Christ. And so one of the things I want to implore you is let's keep it that way. Even if we don't always agree on some of the things we're reading today, that's okay. We're, We're here because of Christ. We're all here to be in the process of conforming to the likeness of Christ for the sake of others. So... So you consider this passage today, what anxieties, confusions, questions do you have about gender roles, marriage, and in the church? And you don't have to necessarily share those right now, but just kind of consider those. As you consider this passage, it's what messages have you received over the years? And I love how Andy extrapolates and expands this idea of family of origin to culture of origin, including church of origin, tradition of origin, school of origin. Pretty much anything of origin, we take for granted how much that has formed our views. None of us grew up in a vacuum. None of us have these autonomous individual theologies that we just had these epiphanies about and we created. We're all formed in them. And a lot of that's really good. I'm glad that I've been formed. And it also involves change, which is also good. And then what could cause you pain and what could bring you joy? And it's okay if if it's a tension of both. It's okay. And my guess is, not that we're going to do this right now, but if, if everyone, if we, just, if we, if we got into a, a, a chamber where everyone could be honest, you know, without judgment, my guess is there would be a continuum. There would be some people in this room that like, yeah, this pa- I can't even read uh, Ephesians 5. It brings so much pain and trauma. And, and maybe people, maybe a passage like this has been used against someone as a weapon or weaponized. And there's others that are like, no, this, is, this, is, this has been great. It's been clear, what have you. And, and that's okay, too. 
There's, there's boundaries there. So consider those questions, if it helps to, to kind of write those ideas. And I'm going to read this passage. By the way, it's the longer you walk with Jesus and study scripture, the more that you realize that with passages like these that can be tenuous at times, um, people read them differently and have different conclusions. And I think it's probably always going to be that way. So it's okay if we don't solve everything today. So reading this passage, I'm actually going to start with verse 1 in chapter 5. And there's a really important reason for this. And we're going to keep hitting back on this reason. Going to keep hitting back on this reason. So chapter 5, verse 1, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. God forgave you. Consider that. Follow God's example. Other translations say, be imitators of God. Follow God's example. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ has loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering. So, remember this verse. We're going to keep coming back to it. It's going to be a theme. So however we interpret everything else that comes after this, this is our theme, this is our point, this is our purpose, this is our meaning. This encapsulates everything. And then, sorry, I didn't, I didn't put this in the slides, made a quick amendment. Then we're going to jump to verse 18. A lot of commentators think that Paul's, the original Greek didn't have verses, chapters, any of that. That started about 700 to 500 years ago. It was just the, all these run-on Greek sentences, no spaces in the Greek letters. So by context is how they developed. But we would all say, yeah, chapters are really helpful for me. Because now I can say John 3.16 versus like, well, you know that place in John, it's like, it's kind of towards the beginning and talking, we don't have to do that. So we're thankful for that. However, it also can truncate the larger ideas that, uh, that, that are being expressed. So starting in verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's really important want to point out this, this part about being filled with the Spirit. Along with verse 1, none of this makes sense, and none of this is really possible without being filled with the Spirit. So this is a part, potentially, again, all Greek letters, all run on Greek letters, they have to have context clues to figure out where these sentences are. So a lot of commentators think, actually, this idea starts in 18. Not everyone, a lot do it. I tend to agree with the 18 part, because... The filled with the Spirit is so key here. Then he continues, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Hearkening back to verse 1 again, be imitators of Christ, out of reverence for Christ, always considering Christ, our greater purpose. This is also a part in the conclusion. This is where you can see bias in translation. Translations are good, we can trust them. We always recommend reading several translations. Because no one translation is, quote-unquote, the word of God. There are human organizations that are doing the best they can to translate a dead language into our ever-changing live English language. If you, don't, if you don't consider how complicated that is, I believe this is a true story. Consider how Chevrolet once had a billboard in Mexico trying to advertise the Chevy Nova. And if you understand Spanish, you realize that might be the worst marketing campaign in Mexico ever. A car that doesn't go. The Chevy Nova. 
Terrible marketing campaign. Translation, it, it takes effort, it takes work, et cetera, et cetera. So some translations will divide the section. Okay, that's, that's a part of the previous section. They could be right. I don't think so. They could be, all right? In my view, you can disagree. This part is key. It encapsulates everything else. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ because remember, this oneness, this mutuality, this interdependence is a theme of Ephesians. That covers everything. So any interpretation that takes us out of this interdependence unity into a kind of hyper-individualistic mode is, I, would, I don't know if that's, that's the best filter. And maybe, as Andy said a few weeks ago, we should check the goggles that we wear, right? And we all need to do that. Then he goes on to say, again, the household, quote-unquote, so-called household cults. Wives submit, to your, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do in the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Continuing, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle in any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Paul loves these long sentences, loves them. I know you guys already did Ephesians chapter one. That's one sentence. Okay, sorry, I digress. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Oneness. After all, no one had ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their own body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Oneness. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Oneness. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Well, all of a sudden, he's, he's talking about these really specific pra practical household codes, these marriage codes, and then he gets to this huge 50,000-foot concept, and he even says, it, hey, this is a mystery. I can't spill any more ink about this because it would be like another Bible trying to explain this mystery, which that's a clue. Again, context clue. Something's bigger going on here than maybe what just we're reading. Then he concludes this section, or at least what we're talking about today. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Then he talks about children, fathers, and then the elephant room, slaves. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. Now, that is a lot. How are we doing? Doing okay. Remember those reflection questions. Let's keep those going. Again, previously on Ephesians, hold for laughs. Uh, previously on Ephesians, we talked about Paul is writing to this kind of desperate, uh, base, I'm going to reduce it to these three groups. So Jews who converted to following Jesus, they kept all the religious customs and rituals. So a lot of them are still trying to get around the idea, wait a second, you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to go to the temple every day and do these, you don't have to do all these festivals to be, to be in this new Messiah-led community. Like, they're, they're struggling with that. Then you have Gentile god who believed in the Jewish God, but maybe they weren't circumcised and they were still Gentiles. Then you had Gentiles who believed the truth and message of Jesus and the gospel, but they're coming from all their panoply of gods, including the Artemis cult and this huge metropolis of Ephesus, which if we think, if we think there's so many options today, it, I mean, Ephesus was right there. 
So that's a lot, that's a stew of tension. That's a stew of complexity. That is a stew of dynamic. As much as it is today, as much as we feel like, oh, it's so polarized today, and all that is true, of course, but it, it was polarized back then. It was very difficult. And Paul, for the sake of the gospel, out of reverence of Christ, says, well, if you imitate Christ because God is one, we will be one. So whatever we think about these passages, if our application isn't towards oneness with our spouse and our relationships as a church body, then we're not reading it right. I don't know any other way to say it, and I'm, not, and I'm saying I wouldn't read it right either. So if someone has a different view in here, let's say Andy comes to me next week and says, I have a totally different view on that. I think you're wrong. That's, that's wrong. That's bad. And I would just to write him off, technical term would be, it, it, it's, this big, it's this big idea called ad hominem. So, oh, because Andy is, is such and such, because Andy is a Republican, uh, he's blank, blank, blank. You make all these other assumptions and judgments about him. That's called an ad hominem. It's a fallacy. No, Andy's amazing. I know Andy. He just has a different view on this. So oneness. So again, I keep coming back to that oneness. And that is the highlighter. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a musician actually too. He was an amazing scholar last century. Uh, uh, he was hung by the Nazis because he was involved in the assassination plot of Hitler. But one of, one of the most brilliant theologians ever, people would agree with that. He, he died when he was like 33. Amazing, amazing guy. So he loved to use these musical analogies and he had this word, this German word called grunten, grunten. And it, and it was a word that described the bass note of a chord. So if you're playing a G chord, the bass note of a G chord would be a G. And he's saying, no matter what, you have to come back to these foundations, especially when confronting these passages, which you might have questions about. So I want to pass out these highlighters. So if you want to take a highlighter, and I don't think I have enough, but that's a good problem to have. So we might need to share. I got one for this side and one for this side. Because I want you to highlight, if you're so daring, 5.1, 5.18, and 5.21. So highlight verse 1, verse 18, and verse 21. And this is key. So as we get into these household codes, we're just going to stick to marriage today. Not so much children and slaves at this point, although there's some application that involves them. Because of verse 1, verse 18, and verse 21, which precedes the household codes, the purpose of marriage is to imitate Christ and to be one as God is one. Now, that's a little bit of a 30,000 foot. I get it. What does that mean? We'll start to unpack that a little bit. But if we lose sight of that, then we potentially have lost the purpose of marriage. To imitate Christ, which means to love as Christ loves, which is sacrificial, to be one as God is one. That's the purpose of marriage. It's oneness. To imitate Christ in Christ's sacrificial love, to be one as God is one. That's, that's our vision, that's our purpose, that's all of it. Now, a little context of this society, because this cannot be overstated. No matter how we interpret this in our culture, going back to the ancient Near East, particularly these huge cities in Ephesus, Greece, the Mediterranean, hopefully Andy and I will do the, the Paul trip together at some point. We'll get to see these places. Can't overstate how different this culture is. So our interpretation of this passage, even though it seems like that's crazy, it's not, oh, it's not apples to apples, it isn't. And let me give you a few examples. 
In Roman society, in Roman law, probably no surprise to you, patriarchal, women didn't have any rights. They weren't considered ontologically equal. The essence of women weren't equal to men. They were less than. Ontologically, meaning the essence of them, was less than. They didn't have any rights. They didn't have any, a voice in just about anything. The purpose of marriage, like we might say, we might have a myriad of answers. One of them would be romantic love, which is good. I definitely am attracted to my wife, and there's romantic love there. But there's a lot of other things, of course. Back then, the purpose of marriage was to keep the paternal line going. So a woman was to kind of, kind of upkeep the, the household, depending on their social class, of course, and then to continue a lineage of sons. That was the purpose of it. It wasn't necessarily romantic love. It wasn't entirely absent, but that wasn't the purpose of it. It wasn't love. And Paul here, and this, and this part is really frustrating, and I can't fully answer this. I don't think really anyone can because it's a long time ago. Paul isn't necessarily trying to abolish the entire societal structure. A context clue. And everyone's ears should be going, huh. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. Does Paul think that slavery is good and God-ordained? No. But he's also not totally trying to abolish that structure, is he? No. However, there's something in Scripture, there's interpretation of Scripture called a redemptive, a redemptive movement hermeneutic. And all that means is, as we interpret Scripture, there's two really important interpretive keys. One is we have to take the entire story of Scripture versus just any one verse, passage, or even letter. So the entire story of Scripture is God created all of us good. In Genesis 1 and 2, we're created good. We're created good. We're created in God's image. And then when God created the earthling first, that's what the Adam is. It's groundling, earthling. God created the earthling. God said creation was good. All of it was good except for one thing. And that was for the earthling to be alone. And then there's two accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. It's very poetic. So God split the Adam. Hold for laughs. That's a joke from Scott McKnight. God split the Adam, and then Isha and Isha, that's the Hebrew for the genders, male and female. He created them. Two genders, he created them. And then together, they became one flesh, the first marriage, to reflect the image of God, the literal icon of God it describes. It's beautiful. So we see in this passage when, when Paul says, a man shall leave his father and mother and join his wife, he is alluding to Genesis. The theme of Genesis 1 and 2 is oneness. God created the earthling, and hey, it's not good for this person to be alone. So we should ask, why is that? They reflected God, but God exists in perfect community, Father, Son, Spirit. That's a mystery, can't get into it today, but God exists in a perfect mutual community of God. God is one. Creates the two who become one to reflect God in marriage. Oneness. So Paul is beckoning back to this oneness idea from Genesis. The cracked icon happens in chapter 3. We all know this, where men and women decide they're going to go their own way. They're going to choose their will over God's will for their life marriage of what they think is right over what God thinks is right. So that cracks the icon. So that's the fall. So God creates everything good, and then sin enters the world. That's the fall. 
But God's love, he redeems by pursuing humanity, by creating a people, the Israelites, to be a light to the world so that people would come back to God where salvation lies, the source of our life. The Israelites pointed to Jesus, the Messiah, so Jesus came to the earth, and then that would be the church, and then that is leading to a restored creation. So the bookends of the Bible are created good, the fall, Jesus, who saves us, who allows us to be redeemed, to be restored again, and then we know from Revelation we're finally going to be restored again into mutuality and oneness. That's the story of Scripture even though there's a lot in between that. So then why doesn't Paul abolish these structures of slavery, for example? Why does he do that? We don't fully know, other than we do have some present-day examples, a couple of examples. Even though we don't talk about this, it's really uncomfortable, and this is going to be like if we're having a party right now, this is the guy who ruins the party. So I'm going to ruin the party right now. None of us really think about where our phones are made and how our phones are made. But if we were to like give an assignment. Where's your phone made? How's it made? How are the people treated who are making them? We would have cognitive dissonance, but we don't because it's really uncomfortable. That people are, it's basically modern day slavery making our phones. But I don't know about you, I can't really live without my phone anymore. It's uncomfortable. So if we wanted to change that, or if we wanted to change, again, hypothetically in 100 years from now, we don't know this. 100 years from now, that generation can look back at us and say, wow, can you believe that people used to drive cars that used gasoline? How much they screwed up the earth. Those were horrible people. They may not say that, but they could say that. We don't know. I'm not trying to argue a platform here. I'm just trying to say, like, like how do you change that? How do you do that without creating a whole other catastrophic problem? Right? I mean, we kind of learned that during the pandemic. You solve one problem, you create another big problem. You don't solve that problem, it creates this other big problem. So anyways, it doesn't solve it, but it gives a little bit of, I think, grace and like, okay. So, but there is a redemptive movement. In slavery, your homework is, look at Exodus 20. That's in the Bible. It's uncomfortable. But then read Philemon. It's obvious there is a redemptive movement in Scripture when it comes to slavery, and definitely with women. There is too. In leadership, in marriage, in all of it. That's different from the Roman society. There's two views. I'm going to do this very quickly. We're running out of time. Two views. You already know them. I just want to highlight them because there's a good chance that in this room there's people that hold both of these views. And I'm, I'm not going to try to guess percentages. But remember, 5-1, highlight that. 18, being filled with the Spirit. And what is mutually submitting to one another, even, even in our different positions. So uh, in the past, or not even 100 years, they've, they've been deemed a complementarian and egalitarian kind of positions on what these household codes are. What, what are these? So even though this is a little bit reductionistic, this is a really brief description of them. The first view, the complementarian view, is men ruling over women is a feature of creation, not a bug. God designed that, ordained that in creation. Before the fall, God designed men to rule. There is a redemptive movement in the Bible because even men ruling 
in the Old Testament or in the ancient Near East is a lot different. Like, even if you hold that position, like, hey, men are the leaders, men are the heads, men's rule, like, you wouldn't do it the way it was done in the New Testament either. <laughs> so everyone believes in some kind of redemptive movement. Um, let's say that you believe in corporal punishment because it's in the Bible. And... Uh, you know, spanking kids or whatever. You don't, do, you don't do it like it was done in the New Testament. You probably don't spank your 15-year-old, but they did in the Bible. Does that make sense? So everyone believes in some kind of redemptive movement, but it's a feature, not a bug. And there are women leaders in the Bible, but, but they're overstated and they're exceptions because of the fall. That's the complementarian view, that yes, there's women leaders in the Bible, Miriam, Deborah, Huldah in the Old Testament are famous examples. New Testament, Phoebe, Junia, Priscilla would be, Mary would be examples. But those are exceptions, not the rule. And they're exceptions because of the fall. Because we're still fond from God. We're, we're not at the restored creation yet. So these things have to happen sometimes because we're sinful. Okay, the egalitarian position would say that men ruling over women is a bug of the fall, not a feature of creation. The redemptive movement from Genesis 1 to Revelation 1 points to oneness and mutuality. Ultimately, that's our created story. That's our narrative. And leadership is gift-based as evidence in Scripture despite culture. So to put it another way, um, the household codes that we read in Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Peter, they're strikingly similar on just face value, if you take them out of context, as the household codes that Aristotle put together. Strikingly similar. So we have to ask ourselves, oh, is Paul just, is he just echoing Aristotle? Is he echoing Roman law and just saying, hey, just fit within this, that this is actually, or is he being counter-cultural? Whether you hold the complementarian view or egalitarian view, either one. Couple more highlights. Verse eight. For once you were in darkness, but now you are light of the Lord. Live as children of light. Then he says, but everything will be exposed by the light as it becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Highlighting. So what, this is what that means. I have people that I respect, mentors, some of my professors that hold the more complementarian view, and they are models for life. I would say, yes, they are worth modeling. Because as you, regardless of their cognitive view of the household codes, their view highlights Christ's character. It imitates Christ. Even though I don't hold that view, just to be honest with you, we, we don't have to agree on that's fine. But what I'm saying is, it, your cognitive view of this is less important than are you living in the light. Because our lives will be, Christ will shine on it. Another way to put this is that let's say that one holds a, a complementary view that, yeah, God has ordained men to lead. If that's not like Christ in sacrificing one's life for his family, that's not what Paul is saying. To flip that coin, I have friends who hold the more complementary view and their lives are worth modeling after. It was like, I kind of don't care what their view is because they sacrifice their very life for their families. They don't, they, don't, they don't care about, they're not like, oh, I need this power. By the way, if we think the point of this passage is, well, when someone has to make the decision, we have to decide who the one person is going to make the decision. That is totally not in this context either. That's usually what this passage gets reduced to. But if you've been married for a while, 
I can't think of one choice in my marriage where that, maybe, maybe it is for some, I, I don't want to like bash that, but it's like, that's, that's, that's not how these relationships work, I don't think, in my view. Anyways, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Crickets, crickets. When I get to one important thing too, uh, it goes back to this idea of agreement. It's called, the, the technical term is called principled centrism. And what that means is, in order to have oneness, it's almost impossible not to have oneness if we don't begin with where we agree. But we don't forego our principles. So it's not like, I'm not asking you, hey, forget everything you were learned, taught, and believe in. What I am saying is, if our views don't shape us towards Christ's sacrificial love, Corinthians 13 is a great place for that, and oneness and mutuality, then it, I don't know if it matters what, what you say you believe. I just don't. I mean, I've heard, I've heard that about Rockefeller. He is one of the greatest philanthropists in history because he was the richest person in history, I think. And yet it said, yeah, his own employees wish he, he was a philanthropist to them. <laughs> I guess he was a really dictator-type boss to the people that worked for him. You see what I'm trying to say? You can have the most right theology and live in a way that doesn't really matter. So interpretive, going back to the interpretive questions, is my view, whether complementary or egalitarian, does it interpret and reflect the greater story of mutuality, love, and oneness, the cracked icon reflecting God's image of, of oneness? And is it reflecting God's redemptive movement in history, or is it just, just reflect the historical view? So is Paul just restoring the Roman law and Aristotle, or is there something else going on? Is my view, like what Andrew was saying earlier, just reflecting a podcast or a news or whatever that I'm, I'm listening to? Again, the purpose of marriage is to imitate Christ, to be one as God is one. Last thing about this passage, because context does matter. The center of a human being in the ancient world, the locus of function was not the head. That's impossible for us to consider because since the Enlightenment, the head is everything. Our whole goal is explanation. It's to parse. It's to figure out. It's, it's, it's almost to like master the Bible. How do I figure out this puzzle of the Bible? And we do that with words. We do word studies. What does the word head mean? And you can read a lot of, and, uh, about debates about what is, does it mean source? Does it mean leader? Some translations will say leader. In the ancient world, the heart was the locus of a person. The heart was the center, not the head. Again, it's hard for us to consider because we consider the head as everything. The head is like everything to us. So that alone should tell, it should ask us, okay, what's going on here? Well, thankfully, Paul has used this body metaphor in at least Romans and Corinthians, at least. He uses the body big time. It's a big metaphor in the New Testament. And every time Paul uses this body metaphor, it's actually not about authority. And if you've only heard this passage read as, well, like, who has the authority? Who has the power? Then context clues would say, I don't know if that's the first interpretation of this. Because when Paul uses the body in Corinthians and Romans, it's about when one part of the body suffers, every part suffers. When one part is honored, every part is honored. And then he concludes this in 528. He even, he even concludes that at the end of this chapter. It's not necessarily about who's got the authority. It's about interdependence. Because when he's using this metaphor, the head needs the body, the body needs the head. One without the other doesn't make any sense. I'm not saying you have to buy that. But what I'm saying is there's a lot more going on than just an Aristotelian 
household code here. Not to mention the fact that he's addressing women, unheard of, revolutionary. That he's addressing children, what? Kids didn't have value either, I'm sorry. He's addressing slaves who were considered not really human, they were conquered people from war. Was it based on race like it is, has been in America? That's nuts, that's unheard of. And he spills more ink about the husbands, unheard of. The husbands had all the rights. They didn't need to be told that they were in power, they were already in power. But to love like Christ, unreal. That was the real mic drop. One that Paul's addressing women first. Again, just didn't, didn't happen. I want to close with a few examples. A historical example is whenever the movement of God has spread, even in American history, in recent history, a, a movement of the spirit, women have been a part of it leading. It's a fact. Every single one. Every single big, whether it's the awakenings or whatever, ever, women have been a part of leading using their gifts. In Ephesians, does anyone know, it's a, shout it out if you know, does anyone know a couple that was a huge part of the Ephesians church? A huge part of Paul's ministry in Ephesians, who helped run the church? You do. Oh, you do know it. You're amazing. Priscilla and Aquila, you can read more about them in Acts 18. They get kicked out of Rome, the Edict of Claudius. They meet Paul in Corinth. They have, uh, they have something in common. They're tent makers. So they use that to kind of get by, make a living, etc. Paul is a tent maker. He's bivocational. They, they, they begin a friendship in Corinth. They follow uh, Paul to Ephesus. We read there, one, so uh, Aquila is mentioned first in 18, but then almost every other time, including in Timothy, because uh, Timothy was written in, in Ephesus, or Timothy uh, was pastor in Ephesus, uh, Priscilla is mentioned first. Now to us, it's like, big deal. That, that was really unusual for women to be mentioned first. Very unusual. Very unusual. And almost every time she's mentioned first. And then when they're talked about, their, their ministry is talked about more mutually and in oneness. And it's Priscilla who's mentioned first as explaining and teaching to Apollos who, who received the gospel, but his theology wasn't quite there yet. We've all been there. After Priscilla's teaching, Apollos begins to teach. That's unbelievable. That's a gift-based ministry. Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila probably had other amazing gifts that the church used as well. But the point is that Paul didn't deem one of them, oh, you, you can't teach because of your gender. That's just not what we see. And I'm, I'm presenting you that's a model of a relationship, really kind of regardless of your cognitive theological beliefs. I don't want to get too caught up there. I do think it matters. But ultimately, if we're not moving towards oneness and imitating Christ in mutuality, and then what I believe this book confers on us, and then what I personally have grown to believe over time, my views have changed, that it's, it's a gifted base, whether it's the apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, shepherd in this church at large, or even in our homes. And that's how, that's how my home functions. And I know that there's probably someone out there who thinks that's, that's sinful. No, I'm not saying in here, or like you guys are doing it wrong. And I know I'm doing it some wrong because I don't have it all. I mean, like I'm married, I, I joke, I feel like my wife is an angel in disguise. And it's like whenever we have family meetings, like I'm the one apologizing. I hate that, I do. Um, all I have to say, 
you don't necessarily have to go change all your theology right now. I'm not suggesting that either. What I am suggesting is, how, it, how is your relationship, your primary relationships, and if you're married, how is it being spirit-filled and spirit-led? And how is your love imitating and reflecting Christ's love? And by the way, when his own disciples were competing for power and asking Jesus for a power authority position, he scolds them in Mark 12. And he says, we don't lord it over like the Gentiles do, like the Roman law does, like the Aristotelian house codes do. So if we're reading those, if we're interpreting that in any way like that, I'm just, I'm saying we're not reading it right. From Jesus' words himself, we don't lord it over like the Gentiles do. We don't. So how are they spirit-led? And then how are we mutually submitting to one another? How are we mutually submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ? That is important. That's an important question to wrestle with. I realize it could be uncomfortable, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. And Andy can blame me next week. Uh, you know, I, I, so I should say disclaimer. My views don't necessarily represent the views of whatever. All right, let, let us, let's pray. God, thank you for this amazing group of people. And above all, God, may we imitate Christ in oneness. And if there's anything said today, God, that, that you don't want us to remember, may we quickly forget it. At the same time, God, um, as you say to us, rise up, O sleeper, rise from the dead so that Christ may shine us. We invite you to shine on our relationships, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Shine on us, God. We believe, help us, in our unbelief, if you convict us of changing in any way, of transforming in any way, of becoming more like Christ, conforming to your image for the sake of others, in faith, God, and in trust, may we accept and repent. It's your name we pray this. Amen.